of the disciples, and he's going to be talking about uh, some, some lessons that he wants them to get out of this. So would somebody read John 13, 12 to 17? When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do. So, Jesus asked the question after he gets done with the uh, foot washing, do you know what I've done to you? That strike you as an odd question? Why, how would they not know what he did? He washed their feet. Well, yeah, but how, how deep do you have to be to know he washed their feet? It was their feet he washed. What does he mean? You understand? Yeah, do, he wants them to reflect on what he did. Jesus really did more than just washing their feet. You know, that's the thing. I mean, on the surface, they had dirty feet. Jesus washes them, and that's that. But Jesus is wanting them to think about what he'd done and understand it more deeply. You know, he says, you call me teacher and Lord. And that's true. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He is teaching us to serve each other. Now, we've already said some other things about this event. This is not the only lesson. But it's the lesson he wants them to reflect on, and maybe the lesson that they would have not easily perceived, maybe because they wouldn't have wanted to, and he nails it down. He says, I gave you an example that you should do as... I did to you. Now, notice that word as. He doesn't say you should do what I did for you, but as I did for you. In my understanding, Jesus was not telling us to wash one another's feet, per se, but to serve one another. You know, Jesus was not instituting some sort of a foot washing ceremony. This was not some, you know, we ought to have partake of the Lord's Supper and give and wash feet. But he was instituting the pattern and the model that the great one serves. The leader serves. That no one is too important to get his hands dirty and do what needs to be done to help someone else. It wasn't beneath Jesus' dignity to wash the disciples' feet. It shouldn't be beneath our dignity to wash one another's feet or whatever other act of service would be useful in the situation. Comments? It's a good lesson for us, isn't it? We need that. Pretty plain, but apply it. Okay? All right, um, 18 to 26. 
I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread is lifted up his hill against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another, at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was, re there was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter, Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back, thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, This is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. All right. So Jesus says, I know the ones I've chosen and the scripture is going to be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. What does it mean to lift up your heel against him? Exactly. I think it's the idea of like a horse that would lift up his heel and kick him. The one who eats my bread. That is the one who has received my hospitality. The one who has enjoyed my blessings. Turn around and give me a swift kick. That's exactly what Judas did. Look at all that Jesus had done for Judas. And then Judas turns around and sells him. Now Jesus tells them about this so that they would have faith when it happens. You know, this is kind of an uh, unsettling thing to see one of the chosen twelve defect like this. It's an unsettling thing for us. Have you ever known, for example, um, someone you really thought a lot of, you know, maybe a preacher or a strong Christian or somebody that, that you really respected a lot and come to find out, you know, they're run around with some other woman or leave the Lord for some reason and it like really just wow it's just overwhelming it's just like man I mean if, if somebody like that leaves the Lord it, it's almost like it, it hurts your faith almost like well maybe, maybe, maybe it's not true after all you know because was brother so and so abandoned the Lord well they could feel that way about Judas, but the fact that Jesus said it would happen should give them more confidence that Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen and therefore that he is the Son of God regardless of what Judas may have done. Amen. So he warns them about this. And then, you know, he's very troubled in spirit. And now this is the third time, 11.33 and 12.27 or the others, this is the third time that's used that verb about Jesus, that he's troubled. You know, he's, in a, he's, he's pretty uh, emotionally upset over what's going to happen. You can surely see why he would have been. This is a very troubling moment. And he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, when you hear that, what do you think? Judas. Yeah. And not only do you think Judas, but what do you think? 
There's plenty more places up here. Just come on up and don't worry about it. Well, when you think one of you will betray me, what are you immediately thinking? Find out who it is and stop it. Well, yeah, but I mean, when you hear betray, you think, yeah, you think Judas get, to, get receiving money from the chief priest to guide him to where Jesus was that night. I mean, you have a very specific image of what Jesus was talking about when he says, one of you will betray me, because we know the rest of the story. They had no idea what that meant. You know, and so what do they immediately think? Well, who is it? And we know from the other Gospels, they even said things like, me? Well now, did they mean me? You mean I'm going to sell him for silver pieces? No. Am I going to do something, maybe even accidentally, that's going to turn around and, and betray him? They don't really know what it means. That's my point. But, they, and, and, but they, they also don't have any idea who it was. Now what does that tell you about Judas, that they don't know who it was? Yes, he's covered his trail well. They don't all swing around and look at Judas. <laughs> if you've ever been in public school, you know, I want you to imagine a class that you're in. You know, you're in the third grade classroom all day, every day, and at some point of the year, the teacher says, one of you is going to really mess up and hurt us all. Half the time, all eyes would go to the same person. <laughs> it's always it is one troublemaker in every class. That, that's who you'd think of. That's who you'd know. It, it's Johnny, you know. It's always got to be Johnny. He's always the one getting called out in my era. Always the one getting the paddling. I don't think they do that much anymore. Uh, but, but they don't do that. Which means that Judas managed to make himself look just like the others. Is that frightening? Think about the lessons we need to learn from that. Just because other Christians don't suspect you doesn't mean you're right with God. Just because you've managed to keep it from everybody else and they all think you're okay, God knows. I mean, sometimes we have this tendency to think that as long as I can convince strong Christians I'm good, then I'm good. No! You may be good at duplicity. That's not a virtue. Also, again, don't let your faith be overthrown by a Judas. One of these days, someone you have great respect for, you're going to find out, was a liar all along. <coughs> it's going to happen. I can remember in my childhood, my adolescence, when a preacher in my church that I had great respect for, I came to find out all sorts of terrible things about him. It was somebody I'd really looked up to and really respected. It's going to happen, probably multiple times. It doesn't change Jesus. It just means there are people who claim to follow Jesus who don't, and some of them cover it up quite well. That was Judas. 
And, and so, you know, Peter talks to the disciple Jesus loved who was reclining on his bosom. Now, the idea of this is they're, they're not seated, but reclined around this table. And so they're kind of, you know, one to the side of the other. So one of them is kind of, you know, uh, reclined uh, on, on Jesus, you know, uh, in front of Jesus, whatever you want to say about that. One of them's right next to him. And, and this one is the disciple that he loved. Now, there's going to be about three more references specifically to the disciple that Jesus loved. He never really says who that disciple was. So we don't really know, but I think most evidence points to it being John, the writer of this gospel. He never names himself or any member of his family in the gospel. And uh, I think he's saying, I'm, you know, Jesus really loved me. And so Peter says, find out who it is. And so he leans back on Jesus and says, who is it? And Jesus lets him know it's the one he gives the morsel to. Probably indicating Jesus may have even been on the other side of Jesus in a position of special honor. And Jesus gives the morsel to him. But nobody really quite understands what all that means. I mean, for us it's like, so John knew, why didn't he stop it? Why didn't John? Well, he may know, but it still doesn't mean he knew what was going to happen at all. Maybe he thinks Judas was going to accidentally stumble and mess up and somehow was going to hurt Jesus. Who knows? All right, come into questions through 26. Josh. Did Jesus justify themselves in the... In their homosexuality. Oh. Oh, well. <laughs> Love and sexual perversion are two entirely different things. You know, I, you know there's, there's many examples in the Bible of people loving each other. We're in a culture where that almost the word has become perverted to mean immoral sexual relationship, but it doesn't mean that in the Bible. And one of the perhaps very damaging thing about our society's prevalent trend toward homosexuality is it almost makes it more difficult to have close friendships. And that's a tragedy. You know, you look at David and Jonathan. They perverted that, but it was not perverted. It was a wonderfully close, pure friendship. There's no reason there shouldn't be those. Other questions or comments? JP. Can you clarify uh, the last point that you made? Was it that John felt that he was going to betray Jesus, or that John felt Judas was well, I think John asks Jesus who it was, and Jesus indicates the one I'm giving the morsel to, and he gives it to Judas. Yes, Taylor. I was always wondered why, uh, instead of just like giving him the morsel, why couldn't Jesus have just said it's Judas? I don't know. But one thing is, if he gives him the morsel, it's like 
Jesus is even specially favoring him and still he does it. Maybe it makes the act of betrayal a little, slightly more outrageous yet. Roger. I don't feel like Jesus is trying to call Jesus back to him. Um, I feel like he watches he, uh, he's saying something I don't know the answer, but it would be very interesting. Bill? Um, is there a difference between the devil putting, because in verse 2 it says the devil having put now a heart of Judas to betray him, and then in verse 27 it says that, that Satan entered him. Is there a difference like with what Judas was doing with Satan entering him and putting something in his heart? Maybe a little. You know, he he's already... Uh, Satan's already inspiring Judas, and now he enters him to have him actually execute him at that execute that plan at that point. That'd be my feeling. Then, do you think it's understood that the betraying that he's talking about is going to lead to his death or arrest? I mean, I guess nowadays we categorize betraying if you know, say something bad about me behind my back. I mean, is it is understood? The word sometimes could be translated "hand over" or "deliver." It might be that you'd understand it means handing him over to enemies, but but saying it means crucifixion, I don't think so. Both. Are there other places in John that John refers to himself as a disciple of Jesus? Yes. Uh-huh. 1926, 217, and 2120. Ben. We think of Jesus in his interaction with children, mainly in the light of Mark Timber. But in Mark 9, he brings the child over and says he receives the littlest one. And it's in connection with the discussion about who's the greatest and he can be last of all. And in verse 20, that's, I think, the same point being made there, the novel of the illustration, that you, who you receive, who you're willing to accept and to receive in the name of Jesus, indicates something about what you think of yourself. And sometimes, you know, we think a great preacher, one of our elders, you know, Jesus himself, you know, we'll accept him, but you know, what if it's a non-Christian, perhaps, says something that points out one of your flaws. What if it's somebody you don't respect very much? When you reject them, you don't receive the ones who Christ sends in the sense there. You know, you don't have the same failing, the same flaws that they did. Okay. Ready? Um, in verse 27, when it says that Satan entered him and Jesus says, what do you do to you quickly? Uh, could, that, could that be almost in the same way that someone is possessed with the demon at this point, uh, that, that Satan is kind of uh, in him and using him? Because it, it seems like if Jesus says to him, what you do, do quickly, um, and he's, I don't know, in his right mind, I don't know, it just seems kind of weird. Do you think that could be a possibility? or? I'm not inclined to think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think Judas knows what he's doing. He's selling him out for greed. He wants the money. I mean, 
I know it's outrageous, but what do we do? What do people do today? Sometimes really horrible things for money. Now, I mean, I don't think they're like possessed in the sense that somehow the devil's just taking them over. But I think sin warps us, it blinds us, greed perverts our hearts. Yeah, and I was thinking, you know, obviously it's not that Satan enters him uh, against his will. You know, this is obviously something he's doing, but I, I was wondering if that would be a possibility that he does actually enter him. Well, I mean, I think he enters him, but I don't, I mean, I don't know how to understand all that, but I think that at least no different than what Satan enters us. Then. It might be helpful to point out that Satan has already filled his heart. He's already gone to make the bargain before it says Satan entered it. So whatever that means, he was already doing these things. Right. And there's a difference. And this is something that's Right. Okay. Right, look at what else happens here. We've alluded to this several times. Let's go ahead and read this. This is pretty uh, interesting. 27 to 30. that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for the, fe- uh, for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. So, Satan enters Judas, as we keep saying, um, and, you know, he says, what you do, do quickly. Now, that's interesting that Jesus is so much in control of this whole situation. I mean, Jesus is orchestrating this. He's laying his life down. He's almost telling Judas, now it's time. You know, it's not Judas that's determining the time of the crucifixion. It's Jesus. Nobody takes his life from him. And, and, and so I think that's interesting. I think it's also interesting that Satan's so involved in all this. You know, and... and we know uh, in, in Luke 22, Satan wanted Peter too. And, and, and it's interesting, Satan's trying to sabotage the followers of Jesus at higher levels than what we may realize. You know, that Satan's intimately involved even in, in the workings of the Twelve right here. We're not exempt. You know, you, I mean, who does Satan want the most? Hey, why not? Get the guys who have most impact. Get the ones who are closest to Jesus. So, I mean, we've got to reckon with the fact that Satan is tempting even the closest disciples. Josh? I think it is. Yes, I think this is the night... And, uh, and almost in the sense of some things Jesus has been saying before where he says the night is coming. You know, 9-4 and 11-10 and 12-35. It is night. That's the hour has come. This is the time of darkness. It is, it is truly night. What's the reference on Satan? Luke 22, 31 and 32. And uh, they think, well, maybe he's going out to buy some things for the feast or to give something to the poor. But actually, 
he is going out to buy what's needed for the feast the lamb isn't that true kind of ironic isn't it so it's night he goes out he's going to get with the chief priests and he's going to lead them to Jesus Jason something I've thought of several times is uh, I wondered to myself does Satan really know what he's doing he's setting this up and he's wanting Christ to die but he doesn't realize the whole scheme of things the whole plan and how much good how much great will come from Christ's death yeah absolutely I agree with that I think it's helpful to recognize that Satan is more limited than God sometimes I think it's easy for us to get a dualistic idea you have the the, the good one and the bad one and they're kind of on the same level they're really not you know I'm not trying to diminish Satan's power and, and impact but God's over Satan Satan can't do what God can do but Satan also does not know what God knows I don't believe Satan knows the future you know he may know some things God said about the future he may be able to figure some things out but if Satan had known he would never he would never inspired this this was the greatest ter- most terrible defeat Satan will ever experience I think I think he was blindsided I don't even think he, I mean that means he didn't have even great insight into some of the prophecies I think also that now I wonder you know sometimes we as humans when we when we engage in sin we we we've given in to our worst judgment and it's and it's we we know good and well we know good and well all our lives that the sins I mean the, the pleasures of sins are passing but we 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 go through with it to satisfy us for the moment and I think of and, it, and so it's not good for the long run I think that you know since that is that since that's the that's evil itself. Satan, I thought to myself that maybe he's going through the passing pleasure of seeing Christ die for him. Or maybe he just doesn't know what he's doing. You know, maybe he's just like, yeah, it's going to be great. I'm going to get to see the Son of God die. You know, that'd be pleasurable to him. But after it's all over, oh no, what have I done? Yeah, we do very foolish things when we're in sin. Satan does some very foolish things. He's pulled a bunch of boners in the history of the world. Part of that's just because God's so wise. But part of it may be that there's nothing like being satanic to blind you and to warp your thinking. Satan is just not nearly as smart as God is. Tim? Um, I've before. I guess the first thing I thought was Revelation that tells, I think, this story of Satan losing like big time where he's this big dragon trying to do everything he can to get the baby and ruin it and mess up because of the heaven and therefore do you understand the practical implications of that quit giving in to Satan you know somehow, oh, it's just so hard it's just so tempting Satan's a loser don't lose to him <laughs> you know we, we, we overrate what he can do sometimes in our attempt to try to justify our failure to turn to the Lord and be strong in him. And I think it should give us determination to win the victory when we realize that Satan, he's not on the winning side. Roger. I think you see Jesus working and 
serving and, and me trying to do good, and I think that he's still working and trying to do evil and trying to win this battle here. And I think sometimes you think that singing is not working, and, and that I don't know. It's like we're, we're so complacent sometimes. It's like if we don't work, saying is working, and he's trying to get people to do evil things, and he's trying to get people to stay in sin, and he's working towards that. And sometimes we're just not working, and we're just letting Satan do with the people that we love, whatever he wants, getting people into sin, and we're just sitting back and not preaching, not teaching, and, and we're not doing anything any good, and people are in darkness, and Satan is working, and we need to do more stuff. We need to work, so that Satan does not win. Amen. JP. I see in verse 27 the contrast that we had back in chapter 6 with this idea of being filled with Christ. And it just shows me, I guess, the power of completely different opposite views. Either you're going to have the bread of life and be filled with Christ, or you're going to be filled with Satan. And it goes back to this idea of, I guess, of lukewarm Christianity. And just fully what Jesus' ministry was, was to prove who he was and show that he is the only way. You know, either it's Jesus or Satan. They're going to be filled with one or the other. And it's really scary. And at the same time, shows me that I need to guard my heart because, I mean, Judas was with me. He had the bread of life there. And he was filled with Satan. Yes, Grady? Do you think there's any significance in the, the morsel of bread? Um, Maybe just that Jesus is doing something for Judas and he turns around. <laughs> That's what I see. The other thing is why, like, where's our problems is that in today's society, like, Satan keeps changing us, and we're like, oh, um, we're, oh, yes, Satan's got us. The problem is we just need to pray to God. God's going to help us. Amen. Yes, John. Uh, this is kind of a bizarre situation to me. I mean, just think about what the disciples are thinking. The other disciples, uh, disciples, in the situation, you know, it says in, uh, after Jesus says, which is usually quickly, it tells us kind of what they're thinking, you know, they don't really understand what happens by that. But they've been, you know, finally pointed out to that Judas is the one who's going to betray Jesus earlier. So, I mean, like, what are they? Don't know if anybody but Peter and John realized that. I don't know if other people heard that conversation, but I just think they didn't, even Peter and John didn't really know what it meant. Look at We've been talking about some of how not getting in the same for the same way he is God is. I was thinking a little bit about Judas and how he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which in the old law was the price of a slave who was ruled by him. So that just shows how little of a price he put on Jesus. But at the same time, we criticize him for that, but we do the same thing every time we sin because we are undermining it showing how little we appreciate the sacrifice Good point. Yeah, good point. So, think of the setting here now. Jesus is here with who? The eleven. The twelve minus Judas. That gives him the opportunity to have a lengthy, serious discussion with the 11, that's the rest of 13, 14, 15, 16, and the special prayer they hear him pray in 17. This is special teaching of John, and uh, would somebody read 31 to 38? So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, 
and God is glorified in it. If God is glorified in it, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me after. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly I say to you, the rooster shall not grow till you have denied me three times. Okay, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. This darkest hour of Jesus is the hour of his glorification because the, the glory is in the sacrifice, in the suffering, and giving himself for man's sins. And so Jesus sees this in a different way than what they would. But he warns them, I'm leaving. I'm with you a little while longer. Then you'll seek me and you won't be where I am. He is worried about the devastating impact of his, his departure on these disciples. The whole world has been wrapped up in Jesus when he leaves. And leaves in this way being crucified. It's going to really hurt them. And so he continues warning them, I'm going away. It's kind of like a parent to a little child. I can remember sometimes when our children were very small. And maybe we'd leave them for a couple of hours or, or, or whatever. There was some, something like that. The, I would sit down with them and I would explain to them, you know, we're going to be gone for, for a, a period of time. You know, we'll be back. But, but you were leaving, so-and-so will be here, they'll take care of you, uh, and so you won't see me. Trying to kind of soften the blow, because it wasn't very often that we left them. So it was kind of unsettling. You know, and you would think, what's going to happen? What, what happened to mommy and daddy? You know, well, well, we'll be back. You know, this is a temporary thing. That's, so he's kind of treating them as little children and, and trying to prepare them for this difficult thing. While he's gone, and not only gone temporarily, but gone to heaven, he's got a new commandment for them. What's the new commandment? Love each other. What? Why say new commandment? Was there anything about love in the Old Testament? You know, did, was Jesus the one who originated love your neighbor as yourself? Where did that come from? Leviticus 19. You wouldn't have thought that was in Leviticus, would you? Uh, but, so, so, what's new here? Love one another. David. That's it. A new kind of love. As I have loved you. Jesus raised the answer. You know, this is not just love like they've seen before, but love in the same way that Jesus loved. That's the challenge for us, to love others as Jesus loves. Uh, I, I, I preached a sermon quite a bit on loving as Jesus loved and just looked at some of the characteristics of Jesus' love for us and said that's the kind of love we need to have for each other. That's a really profitable thing. There's so many passages that say that we need to love one another like Jesus loves us. That is a challenging thing. 
to constantly relate to each other with the same kind of love Jesus has toward us. But Simon picks up on the idea he's leaving. He says, Lord, where are you, go- where are you going? He says, you can't follow me, but, but you'll follow later. And, and Peter says, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll die for you. And that kind of ironic. Peter says, I- I'll lay down my life for you, when in reality, it's going to be the opposite. Jesus is laying down his life for him. And Peter mistakes strong feeling for moral strength. He thinks right now in the wave of emotion, I'll die for you. The truth is, before the rooster won't crow until you've denied me three times. That's the truth, Jesus says. Sometimes we think in an emotional moment, I'll never do this. I, you know, I'll always be faithful. It's easy for us to say that. It's more difficult when the test comes. This whole conversation for the next chapter or so moves along with questions and comments from the disciples. Here Peter, then it'll be Thomas, then it'll be Philip, then it'll be Judas, not Iscariot. You know, as different ones interject things as he's having this conversation. Comments or questions through chapter 13? Michael. So this little while you say is Maybe it is. Maybe it is. It's going to be a question mark. We'll get into a whole lot more, but yeah, maybe so. Roger. In verse 35, he says, by, all, uh, by this only we know that you're my disciples. In other words, when we love each other like Jesus loves, and that, is that the greatest testimony that we've, we've been with Jesus? I think it's one of the uh, greatest ways people see that we are followers of Jesus, by our love for each other. And uh, that's an important point, because if we don't love each other, then that is going to keep people from recognizing that we are his disciples. Uh, that's one of the most impressive things there is. Comments and questions? Okay, look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, verses 